You're going to love this. Just love it. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, as hosted by Brad Friedman of Brad Blog. But today, you have me, Angie Cuero. I am the host of In Deep with Angie Cuero. Heard on many of these same stations and streams. Hey, just as I open the mic here, this came in from the New York Times, quote, Donald Trump said on Monday he was ready to announce whether he would pull the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal as European officials quietly indicated they had failed to convince the administration that dismantling the accord would be a huge diplomatic error. Diplomats who were familiar with the negotiations said Mr. Trump appeared inclined to scrap the deal and reimpose sanctions on Iran that were suspended in an accord reached in Vienna in July 2015. Oh, it had Obama's fingerprints on it. No wonder he hates it. At least that removes the suspense of which toddler tantrum will dominate the news cycle, at least until he tweets again. The new video and song out from Donald Glover's musical alter ego, Childish Gambino, you have to watch it. You just have to. Even though it is really upsetting. In fact, you have to watch it more than once. The setting and the direction are absolutely breathtaking. His moves sample tradition African dance styles and Jim Crow era caricatures. The violence is repulsive, as it should be, as it is every day in America. There's just so much going on on that screen that you miss a lot on the first go-round. And it all adds up to a piercing indictment of today's culture, especially for Black Americans, especially even so for Black American men, specifically. Later this hour, you'll hear from author Morgan Jerkins on growing up a Black woman in America. Her book, This Will Be My Undoing, is the paper counterpart to Gambino's video and audio masterpiece. That's coming up later on the broadcast. Right now, let's dive into some headlines here. Have you noticed there is so much going on and has been since Trump began bespoiling the White House by his very presence 
that what in days past would become a major long-life scandal or at least continued big news is now just another day. Case in point, on Friday, the day where news goes to die, well, everyone's looking forward to the weekend, the Washington Post broke an important story. Now, it has continued in the news to some extent. Trump's pick to head the CIA behind the scenes was planning to rescind her acceptance of the nomination. Gina Haspel not only was in charge of the CIA, the site where an al-Qaeda suspect was waterboarded more than 80 times. She was overseeing that site. She was also tangentially involved in the decision to destroy the videotapes of interrogations. Now, she was not in charge. I'm not going to overstate her involvement here, but she was aware and she was complicit. And that is apparently why she is more than a bit intimidated by the specter of on-the-record Senate hearings. CNN is reporting that Republicans are preparing just-in-case nominations behind hers. And as in so many other appalling Trumpian situations, they are counting on at least a couple Democrats to cross the aisle to vote for Haspel. So basically, they're ready either way. It's worth noting the language from the White House, and I'm quoting here, Acting Director Haspel is a highly qualified nominee who has dedicated over three decades of service to her country. Her nomination will not be derailed by partisan critics who side with the ACLU over the CIA in how to keep the American people safe. No transparent us versus them there, huh? But yeah, this is now living amongst so many other Trump headlines. Stormy Daniels, Rudy Giuliani, Robert Mueller, Michael Cohen. It's just more of the same. Of course his candidate is horribly compromised. Of course. Of course, much more high profile than that is the cloud that just won't leave Donnie alone. That is the possibility of having to sit down and answer questions from Robert Mueller. We keep hearing about his possibly taking the fifth. Just for a minute, just this moment, let's put aside the legality of taking the fifth, okay? Let's talk instead about those golden days of the past when even the worst of our politicians at least put on the show of respecting the public and our collective government. Now, I'm telling you, I lived through Reagan and two, count them, two Bushes. I know the difference between tipping your hat and pretending and genuinely caring about the country. I am boggled that I see those days now as, in any sense, a good thing. But, you know, it actually is better to have a fake in the White House. By the very act of pretending to give a crap about the Constitution and the rule of law, you at least sustain the shared standard that that still matters. Ultimately, it's yourself that you shame when you do that, at least in retrospect, when when delusional fandom wears away and the damage that you have wrought is clear. It's you that failed, not the principle. The principle stands for others to see that it still matters. Trump is, in fact, decimating the principle. Trump is spurning, laughing at, defecating all over the bonds that we've always at least acknowledged on the way down. He's worked to undermine legit investigations to the point that he's perfectly willing to spit on, to keep spitting on the principles themselves. 
And that might sound like a small difference, but to me, it's a critical one. Monday, he was yiping on Twitter again about the conflicts of interest, capital C, capital I, conflicts of interest of the Dems making up the Russian witch hunt. Capital R, capital W, capital H. What's him, him in capitals? What is that? So his tweets were apparently an effort, failed though it was, to make people forget Stormy Daniels' fabulous appearance on Saturday Night Live. Got to get your smiles where you can, huh? Anyway, Trump's latest loose cannon... Rudy Giuliani said over the weekend Trump won't comply with any subpoena issued by Robert Mueller. Let's speculate for a moment that he does have to show up. Can he take the fifth? Now, there was a very good conversation about that on NPR's Morning Edition, and they brought in former U.S. Attorney Matt Olson. Host Steve Inskeep asked Olson, how would you avoid committing perjury when questioned by the FBI? Well, you really have two choices. You tell the truth or you take the Fifth Amendment. And the president, like any witness, has the right to not answer a question if it would incriminate him. But an important point here is that you cannot just assert a blanket Fifth Amendment, I'm not going to testify. That has to be asserted on a question-by-question basis. So there's certainly a lot of questions that the president could be asked that he wouldn't have a Fifth Amendment privilege, but that's his only route, either truthful testimony or Fifth Amendment. Wouldn't have a Fifth Amendment privilege, meaning that he might have to take the fifth. There was that list of 48 supposed questions or whatever, 40-some questions. He might have to take the fifth 40-some times, and then you'd have to argue over whether he actually had the right to take the fifth every single time. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, that's how this would play out. He would have to determine whether to take the fifth on a question-by-question basis. Now, if Trump is counting on any support from anyone besides diehard Republicans, the diehard right, he best watch out because the vast majority of independents in America, whether they lean left or right, those who declare themselves independents, are vastly approving of Robert Mueller and the investigation, and they all think it's legit. A political has pointed out that Trump has woven together his legal problems, this week's elections, and possible impeachment at a rally in Michigan. He kind of tied them all together. Again, though, with the us and them, he invoked the vision of scary black woman Maxine Waters to his loyal throng. Interesting quote from an unnamed source written in that political ar- Politico article. I think, the source said, where there are plenty of Americans who are sympathetic to the investigation, there are also plenty of Americans who will think this is just a witch hunt. Now, where do you think they got that phrase, witch hunt? This is not a legal problem for the president, the quote goes on. It may be a legal problem for other members in his orbit, but it's not a legal problem for the president. never has been. It's always been about potential impeachment. Not a legal problem for the president. Okay. Anyway, all that is confirmation of Greg Sargent's take in the Washington Post that Trump really does want a showdown over this in whatever form that takes. So let's do look at this week's elections, okay? Okay. If you haven't heard Brad's most recent coverage of the elections themselves and how weak our protections are to keep these and every other election on the up and up, look at the Bradcast for all of his earlier shows. In fact, look especially at his conversation with John Nichols just a few days ago, very much on topic. Now, the AP carried a story on the topic of whether our elections are secure and safe, just like Brad did. They covered it, but... Here's where you find key differences. This is kind of grimly funny. Again, take your laughs where you can find them, okay? Just where that AP article notes that Indiana is one of the states using Homeland Security to scan for cyber interference, it also says, quote, 
Indiana, like other states, is not without defense against hackers. It has used a private vendor to conduct a risk assessment. Because private vendors couldn't possibly have a vested interest in election outcomes. Yeah. Now, Brad has been covering all the key elections in depth. Here's a quick reminder of the biggest stuff on the table. In Ohio, money is on Sherrod Brown to keep his senatorial seat in the long run. But you know what complacency does? We are soaking in it, so never assume. Ohio has a number of key positions open, from congressional districts to governor. The primaries will be a good indicator, though, of the possibility of turning the state from red to blue. Indiana, the state Mike Pence despoiled before he moved to Washington, has a few nasty fights going on. Senate Democrat Joe Donnelly is considered vulnerable. His potential GOP contenders have been very busy trying to prove which one is the Trumpiest. So again, this is going to be something of a decision between, are they going to stay red? Is there a chance to turn Indiana blue? This and the 9th Congressional District will give some hint in that direction. Trump absolutely owned Indiana in the presidential election. For thorough details on these races, West Virginia's, North Carolina's, and coming elections in the next week, you can check bradblood.com. Hey, here's some good news. One more state has signed on to help eliminate the Electoral College. What a different world this would be if the popular vote were all that mattered. But I digress. Saturday, Connecticut General Assembly voted approval of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and it is off to the governor for signature. Now, that's the growing movement to blow out the influence of the Electoral College. It requires the state delegates to vote for the candidate. Can't talk today. It requires the delegates to vote for the candidate who gets the most popular votes in the state. The governor's signature in Connecticut would make it 11 states now making that new news. As Benjamin Hart noted in New York Magazine, if Democrats can make progress in winning back some of the governorships and state legislators they've forfeited over the years, they'll be in much better shape to push through the popular vote legislation in a few more states, making what once seemed like a pipe dream tantalizingly close to reality. The one caveat, he adds... Even if cooperating states do hit their target, it's unclear whether the federal government would need to give them its blessings. And Fortune magazine reports a number of women running for governor has hit an all-time high, up to 77 when you count those who have filed and those who are expected to file. The record set in 1994 was a paltry 34 women candidates. Not Paul Treat at the time. That was big news at the time. But hey, 77. As much as 77. Oh, and that tiny little noise you heard emanating over the weekend from Southern California was the state GOP membership getting together. Both of them had a very good time. Yes, I'm kidding. But the gubernatorial candidates on that side are so lackluster. The party couldn't even get up an endorsement for either of them. Small but important story got lost in the rush of news at the beginning of May, but it does matter, so let's go back and look at that. This is a quote from Sanford Health. Cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis hit an all-time high nationally in the most recent Center for Disease Control and Prevention annual report that documented 2 million cases of sexually transmitted disease. 
syphilis rates were up 18% in one year, including, let's sit down for this one, okay, a 28% increase in syphilis among newborns, newborn babies. Now, the highest rates here are among those 16 to 25, age 16 to 25. They are the least likely people in the country to remember the days or to even hear of the days when people lost brain functions and their lives to sexually transmitted diseases. Now, here's something key, and it's further down the page in that report. Amy Kelly, MD, an obstetrician and gynecologist at Sanford Health Midtown Family Planning Clinic in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, says she suspects a big reason for the surge is that some states have done away with sex education standards, so some schools don't offer anything. And this little giveaway, right under that, Midtown operates in cooperation with the South Dakota Department of Health to provide free or discounted services. Because it's a federally funded family planning clinic, it can provide birth control to minors, which is otherwise against South Dakota law. Actions have consequences. Can we talk about the ongoing conservative efforts to quash any unbiased knowledge about how human reproduction works? Nicholas Kristof had a column that he headlined, Blue States Practice the Family Values Red States Preach. In that, he said, When evangelical kids have sex, they are less likely to use birth control. And that may be a reason, along with lower abortion rates, that red states have high teen birth rates. Nine of the ten states with the highest teen birth rates voted Republican in 2016, and nine of the ten states with the lowest teen birth rates voted Democratic. Of course, Trump's budgets in their various incarnations pushed abstinence-only programs in schools, despite their time and again proven failure But, and again, actions have consequences, until we talk frankly to kids about what happens between their legs and how to take control of that realistically, we will keep seeing such delicious developments as babies coming into the world with syphilis and other such preventable goodies. Let's do move along here. Coming up, stories from an African-American woman growing up in America's racist culture and... Dave Nywert, on how Trump and his acolytes continue to encourage the violent right. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world, and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And... Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance. From Desi Doyen and myself, 
Thank you. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Carrow. And as I mentioned at the top of today's show, we've seen a new video drop that I think will still be watched decades from now as a landmark of social commentary. Donald Glover's America. It is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. Now let's get a woman's perspective on living black in America. In fact, I've got two lined up for you over the course of this week. One today, another one later this week. We're going to start off with Morgan Jerkins. She has a book that went right to the bestseller list. This will be my undoing, living at the intersection of black, female, and feminist in white America. And, you know, I was, I was about to say it's a fearless look at her life, but it's not. That, that's part of its grace. She tallies her fears out loud. All the messages she's got, too, about how to be a good girl, how to be a good black girl, how to attract a good black man. All of which she has had to digest and overcome. It is a lyrical, riveting read. And she joined me to talk about it for my show, In Deep with Angie Quero. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. Talk about the way that you bookended the book with two different lists about how to be. Mm-hmm. So the one list that I had was called How to Be Docile. And I, it, was, it was a very confrontational chapter, and that's the way I wanted it to be. Um, I was having a conversation with my aunt, and she's in her 70s, and we were talking about what it's like to be a black woman in dating, what it's like being a successful black woman in dating, what it's like to be a successful and opinionated black woman in dating. And... I was telling her that I was having a really hard time because if you read uh, Hunger for Men's Eyes, you'll see that I was dating men and I was getting all of these signals that I don't see you or I'm intimidated by you or I'm going to sort of say you're not deserving of my love because you're opinionated and you're successful. And she said something very satirical to me. At least that's what I interpreted as. She was like, why don't the next day you go and you just be docile and see what happens? (laughs) And then the next chapter I wrote that, the next day. I wrote that chapter and I said, here's how a woman, here's how a black girl becomes docile. She gets a man, she learns what pain is about, she gets into these white spaces, but she keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until she dies. And then guess what? The person who taught how to do that didn't learn a lesson and teaches it to the next black girl. And I looked at that chapter and I was like, the editor's probably going to say I can't keep that. But she said keep and I said, well, good, because I wanted to. Because I wanted people to get this, this really raw, down to the bone idea, even though it seems exaggerated. Like, these are the signals that I get and so many other women get that how much I got to teach you to shrink for someone else to fit into your life. And then moving into the the latter end of the book, How to Survive. And that was supposed to be the crescendo, meaning that, you know, telling Black women about what I was just talking about, the interruptions, the microaggressions, and telling them they're not paranoid. And this is how great you are. But it was just a therapeutic vent for me. I wasn't angry in that. I was trying to bring for my Black female readers into this oasis, so to speak, because I was talking about all these different hard subjects, um, but also to help them know that even though I don't know who they are, even though my experience does not 100% mirror theirs, that I understand and I'm here for them and that they're never alone in those feelings of being ignored or degraded or just erased. Mm-hmm. When did you start defining yourself as a feminist? College. So I came from a community where feminism was a pejorative term. Feminism meant that you wanted to overtake the man. Feminism meant 
that it's just like, why is it necessary? <laughs> Unnecessary label. Then when I went to Princeton and I was surrounded by other women, especially black women of the diaspora. So I learned about feminism, learned about intersectionality, misogynoir, which means the hatred of black women. Um, and that is when I started to learn about feminism was pretty much in college. Mm -hmm. Well, you said you learned about feminism and intersectionality. When did you start to glom on to the fact that, that what some people looked at as the ideals of feminism had not a whole lot to do with you? Man, I think probably around the time that I was leaving college mm -hmm. and I was, you know, spending a whole lot of time on the internet, um, especially Twitter. And the interesting thing about what's happening now is that a lot of women, especially black women, put their knowledge out there for free. So if you go on Twitter, you will see women who make threads upon threads upon threads of, I'm going to teach you about this thing. And that was how I learned pretty much the difference between, you know, mainstream feminism and, and feminism, feminism versus womanism and all of those things. Yeah. What's your take on feminism versus womanism? I say that as a black woman, you should be able to identify however way you want, want what seems feminism womanism because I understand it. Like mm -hmm. if you want if you want uh, an ideology that specifically centers black women, I can see why you would go with womanism because the um, but at the same time, I feel like you shouldn't stigmatize the black women that want to be called feminists either. Mm -hmm. If you're interested, Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins, who was phenomenal with this stuff, she has a whole essay that lays out what's the difference between feminism, womanism, what someone calls themselves and what that can be interpreted as. And also, you know, the implications of each term. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one of the, the emblems of, of the disconnect, I didn't know about this. I found out about the uh, the pink pussy hat being put on Harriet Tubman. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I just had a reaction. Because uh, <laughs> I live in Harlem. Oh, God. <sighs> that was so bad. Um, and, and that's the hard thing. One of the things that I'm really interested in now as a writer is to somehow write about the disconnect between good intentions and terrible results because i don't think we're i don't think we're there yet like i, I meant it as a good intention well, that, so what does that mean so i think you know i think the intentions were good but that was it was awful mm -hmm. i hated it well, you know, there's a, a woman who put together the Women's March in Michigan. She's the, the founder and president. I actually pulled one of her quotes to ask you about whether you thought this was a great way to approach this. Mm -hmm. She said, we can't be divided right now. We need to unite. If you want to wear one, you can. Just be aware it's upsetting to some people, and that's why the national has moved away from it. We're going with the statement, if people want to wear it, feel free. Just be aware there's the perspective that it is pushing away some of the women we need to unite with. That to me was one of the most even-handed things mm -hmm. I saw about. Oh it. yeah, that was definitely even-handed. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I did not attend the women's march the first go round. I will admit. Um, one of the reasons my sister called me when she asked me was like, one of the reasons why I didn't want to go is because I was just afraid that like, if it got out of hand, the police would be more inclined to do something to me than the white woman next to me. And seeing as how, and I'm sorry, but seeing as how many white women were out there, I know some of them voted for Trump. And I just was like, I do not want to be in their presence today. Um, and so I, I think it's, you know, in terms of the pink hats, yeah, I think it's okay to wear them, but like, I think also about women who are not cis, 
Mm-hmm. Right. How, you know, not even just black, not just black or women or women of color. What about the women do, who, who are trans? Like, how does that stigmatize them as well? Mm-hmm. So that's another thing where it's like when we're saying, yeah, for women, I get it, you know, reproductive rights. And all, but we also have to think about you not being what, what do you call it? TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists as well. So just you have to keep that in mind, too. You were talking about the 53 percent of white women who voted for Trump. Please talk about what it means to be a black woman and an American, especially today. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard because, you know, because when you just brought that up, I was thinking of Roy Moore um, in the Alabama election. And it was a moment where I just felt like I was going to be triggered all over again. So the night of the election, I was um, at a house party um, in uptown Manhattan. And once I think Trump won Ohio or something, this woman next to me, Jewish woman, just started crying. I don't, I haven't heard somebody cry that hard since my stepfather died. And she was just like, I don't know how I'm going to go home for Thanksgiving. What am I going to do? At that time, I was living with a man in Harlem who was a white gay Republican and a Trump supporter and believed in Pizzagate at that time. And when I, when, when Trump was elected, I knew the next day I had to leave and I had to move out. Um, and so it's hard because, you know, when we looked at the statistics, it was like 93% of black women voted for Hillary. Then when you look at what happened with, you know, the whole Roy Moore thing, Doug Jones, I think his name was, again, black women voted for the man who wasn't allegedly molesting little girls. Trigger warning, I'm sorry. Um, And it was like, and I hated, you know, the whole idea of black women save the day, but y'all don't have our backs, though. Mm -hmm. Like, who is going to watch out for us? Why is it that black women always have to come through and, and, and save the day all the time? And so I think when it's like, when I think of black women, I think of like, we always get the job done. But if, you know, you think about national and, and being a community and all of that, it's like, it does feel a little bit like cognitive dissonance when I think of myself as an American because we're out there looking for, out for other people, oftentimes at the expense of, our, of ourselves, and who's going to look out for us and our issues besides other black women? Mm-hmm. That pressure to always be the one to pick up the pieces, the one to always push it through, that's exhausting. It is exhausting. That's why black women are like, you know, why do we have to do it all? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to do that? And that reinforces this whole strong black woman stereotype um, that it's not only just in black communities, it's just America at large. We've seen the statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, it, and it's crazy. I think when I think about what, what happened with Trump, it's like, if you think about Hillary Clinton, right, you think about the crime bill in the early 90s with the whole super predator thing, like there were, I bet you there were black mothers whose families were directly influenced from that bill and the prison industrial complex at large, but they still voted for her. So why is it like, you know, they were targeted in that way, but they still, they still showed up for her. I was like, I, that was almost unfathomable to Mm me. Um, Because, I mean, she was, when I saw people rallying for Hillary, like really rallying, it was white feminist. So I was like, so what happened there? Like, Mm -hmm. what happened? Mm -hmm. That's Morgan Jerkins. I'm Angie Kuro. This is the Bradcast. The next bit of our conversation reflects a news story that came out of Florida. Now, this is still unfolding, so all of this is as alleged. As alleged, the graduation ceremony at the University of Florida was typical. It was a line of students in gowns traipsing up and across the stage to pick up their diplomas. And as is also typical, some of the students wanted to stand out a little more than others. Washington Post, Washington Post said one student did a backflip, one proposed marriage. 
Now, where it turns ugly and weird is what reportedly started to happen at this point. And Usher started giving the hook to students taking that moment to prance or strut and make their mark on the ceremony. One of them all but got tackled. And as the students who were on scene documented on video, and as they are continuing to report, everyone who did their thing with no interference was white. Everyone forced off the stage in as little as two seconds was black. The University of Florida president has issued an apology, which reads a little bit odd since he was standing on the stage when all this went down. In my conversation with Morgan Jerkins, I asked about this way too common double standard. You have a number of cultural touchstones through the book. Mm-hmm. The girls who've been dismissed from schools because they're wearing their hair natural mm-hmm. and dress codes in the military and in the schools mm-hmm. that take how women's hair naturally looks mm-hmm. and saying, well, that's untidy or it's militant or it's not in keeping with what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. The fact that that is still an issue. Yeah, um, I think the hard part is, is that, yeah, there's one side of me that's like, why is a little eight-year-old black girl who's just trying to learn her times tables having me pulled out of class because she has cornrows in her hair or she has an afro? She's not doing anything to anybody, but it's that type of you are making me uncomfortable. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pluck you out of this environment. And it's that that constant signaling that black girls get that they are making people uncomfortable just for existing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think so thinking about, you know, hair, for example, like if you look in the past and this is something I talk about, like there have been many moments where black women were taught to hide their hair. Like if you look in Louisiana with the Tignon laws, the black women were told that they had to put their hair in the scarves in order not to compete with white women. So they couldn't even show their hair out in public, right? Um, if you even think about like the way in which, you know, I'm thinking about hair, like for example, what I say in the book as well, you know, you're taught, you're conditioned that having cornrows is not something that you should do in a job interview. Cornrows can be seen as ghetto, but then Kylie Jenner does it, and then it's glamorous, and then it's chic, right? So it's that not only are you saying, okay, it's not, it doesn't look good on my hair, but if it looked good on somebody else's hair that's not a black woman, okay, all of a sudden it's in vogue and we should all imitate it. So it's annoying, and it gets <laughs> on my nerves. It gets on my dirt. Well, you can see some of the tension in the book as, and as you walk through your life. At one point you say, I enjoy living my life as a provocation. I am a stranger and I like it. But at the same time, you still find yourself in situations where your very natural actions as a human being might bump up against cliches about black women and damaging stereotypes of black mm-hmm. women. It's like, you know, how do you be angry without being the angry black woman? And how do you express your sexuality without being, you know, the overtly sexual animal? That, yeah. You know? um, so I always tell this anecdote and I'm going to say it here. So I, I had the privilege of interviewing Claudia Ranking. She's the author of Citizen, which is a book that I would urge you all to pick up. And she invited me to her home. I was sitting across from her at the table and I asked her, you know, how do you prepare yourself to go out in the world? Um, Claudia Rankin, even though she's, you know, she's very brilliant, obviously. She's also very fashionable. Like, she's had, like, the NARS lipstick and the Hermes scarf. She just was so elegant. I was like, how do you prepare yourself? Because you're writing about all these hard things. And she said to me, you know, it's not that I had to prepare myself for the world. It's that the world interrupts me. And when she said that, it made so much sense because it made me realize that my life as a black woman is filled with innumerable interruptions. When I'm just trying to get from point A to point B. And so this sort of idea of like, you know, 
me being okay with provoking people, I think that comes with me being an adult, saying like, I don't have to be here, I can get up and go. Whereas I think when you're a child, you you know, you're under the supervision of a parent, so you might be in situations and all of that. So yeah, and I think it's it's all about finding your people. Like, I'm lucky to have a strong circle of friends who never let me think that I'm overthinking when I go out, because I live in New York. When I'm in New York and somebody doesn't make eye contact with me, I talk to them. Or when I ask to see a certain item, that people, they don't just give it to me. They tell me what the price is first. Or when I go into a store and no one says hello to me. Or when I hold the door for somebody and they don't say thank you or they see me right behind them and they shut the door in front of my face. I don't have a circle of people that say, you're overthinking it. It wasn't that bad, which is a form of gaslighting. So that always helps to be my anchor to let me know that I am not paranoid. I'm not going to pathologize my thought process. I was just interrupted. So the last of Morgan's conversation I will share with you has the same topic as a new Netflix documentary, the self-proclaimed transracial Rachel Dolezal. The doc is called The Rachel Divide. I watched it twice because this woman is impossible to comprehend, even if you get two hours of help. And coincidentally, I had asked Morgan about her. Rachel Dolezal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do with that what you will. So... Rachel Dolezal's a fraud. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Rachel Dolezal, Rachel Dolezal was this woman who masqueraded as a black woman in Spokane, Washington for years. I'm talking about she fooled the NAACP chapter, where I think she sat on the board. She fooled her students, because I think she was an Africana studies professor. She fooled everybody. This woman, she had bronze foundation, a kinky wig, And she attracted, uh, I think, maybe international attention. She went on this huge publicity blitz. And, you know, people were saying, you know, why, if you can have trans, transgender people, why can't you have transracial people? So I don't know if you want me to break that down for you. I'd love for you to break okay. that down. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, right? And I'm, and I'm sorry if there's any scientists in the room. So I'm going to sound a little convoluted. It's been a while. Um... <laughs> I'm a woman. I'm I'm a cis woman, and I have XX chromosomes. I get what a cis man. He has XY chromosomes, right? We have a baby, but we don't know. It could be either given the label boy or girl. They get one X chromosome, right? So you don't know that. But in this country, if I'm a black woman and I get with a white man, that child is still going to be a person of color. It takes one parent, right? And the way that it is in this country, yeah, race and gender are both social co- societal constructs, but they still have replications because people look at your parents. No one looks at, you know, me as a girl and say, oh, okay, like both your parents are girls and it's just determined that way. But when they look at a person with a wide nose, kick your head, like, oh, somebody in that family is a person of color and that changes everything, right? So it was hard for black women to look at Rachel Dolezal and she said, oh, I'm a black woman. And it's like, but you put on your your family, and so much is about lineage in this in this country, even to this day. We may not have aristocracy, but it is there's a lot that has to do with lineage and blood. If you research how you know what white people have done to assume who who gets assigned as white in this country, it will blow your mind, right? So if you think of Rachel Dolezal, it's like okay, this woman puts on a kinky wig and bronze foundation, but her parents are lily white, and it's like okay, so she considered she gets to be black, right? 
But if I, for example, put blue contacts in my eyes and wear a blonde wig, no one is going to say that I'm a white woman. They're going to say that is a black woman with blue contacts and a blonde wig. It is not the same, right? And that's the one thing when we're talking about, you know, when we're trying to conflate transgender issues with this idea of transracialism and that you can change races, Black black people's identities are not as malleable as white people's. We we don't we were never granted that fluidity in identity before, mm-hmm. and so that's what I wanted people to understand. It's like only white women could con- command this kind of attention for this type of issue. But if a black woman does this, she's going to be seen as crazy, basically. So it was very very offensive. This whole idea of like, well, can she do it? Why can't she do it? Would a black woman be able to do it? No, not at all. That's Morgan Jerkins, author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America. We're going to move on over to the never-ending topic of America's new Nazis. I'm Angie Coyro. This is The Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from The Green News Report and The Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero. Is it extremist? Is it over the top to clarify that the so-called alt-right is just another cover for Nazis? Why no? Since you asked, it is not extremist. They have it all. Racial animus, covert and not-so-covert calls for righteous, see my air quotes, righteous violence, subjugation of women, The list goes on. We could go with neo-Nazis. Why waste the extra syllables? Nazi. Anyway, it appears that one of the United States' more virulent Nazis is, in fact, homed in Montreal. Charles Zeiger, that's a pseudonym because these folks very rarely stand publicly behind their own words, is a high-profile contributor to the Nazi website Daily Stormer. And he is a right-out-there cheerleader for the Atomwaffen Division, which has been linked to five murders on U.S. soil. The Southern Poverty Law Law Center calls him the division's primary publicist. Per the CBC, a new hate group, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, used its first public statement to call for criminal charges to be laid against him. Evan Balgor, the network's executive director, said Friday he was confident there is enough evidence to warrant charges. Nazis and other flavors of hate groups have been around forever. It's Trump's rise to the White House that has emboldened them to become proud leaders in America. Except in a lot of cases for that whole using your whole name thing, which they're still not keen on. In a conversation with author and journalist Dave Nywert, we talked about how this never quite goes away. His book we had on the table was Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. And the day we spoke... The latest proud signaling from Trump to his troops had just come down the pike. The United States Citizenship and Immigration Services has eliminated the phrase a nation of immigrants from its mission statement. What did you think when you heard that from the uh, Immigration and Citizenship's office? 
More of the same. More I mean, the same. Yeah, I mean, I've been writing quite a bit about how, you know, the Trump policies, for instance, the Muslim ban, these initiatives that they're taking, the the way ICE is uh, just going wildly out of control, and um, a lot of these policies that are just coming down the pike, um, very clearly, you know, are just profoundly anti-immigrant. So, honestly, I, I, I actually thought, well, this is perfectly appropriate for this administration. Mm-hmm. Of course, they have no appreciation for, you know, what was it that uh, Stephen Miller said after somebody brought up the the uh, poem on the Statue of Liberty? He said, "Well, that was added years later." You know, which just tells you their profound contempt mm-hmm. for the attitudes that are contained in Emerald Lazarus's poem, which I think are still very much the credo of the real America. You mentioned Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the KKK. For the longest time, those of us uh, who came of age after they were at their peak, it was easy to look at Martin Luther King's, you know, the arc of justice is long, uh, the arc of the universe is long when it bends toward justice. Mm -hmm. And it was easy to believe that because they peaked and then they started to fall. Somewhere in there, they started to regain. And now they may not run around with hoods on their heads, but they're in large the same people. They could seem to the eye like they haven't lost any power at all. It's as though they went away and hibernated Mm -hmm. and then came back. So take us from where they appeared to be falling to how we got to where we are now. Well, it's in some regards, it's kind of cyclical because this is very similar to what we saw in the 1920s with the rise of the Klan. Most people don't know that the Klan was actually a nationwide organization. It wasn't relegated to the South in the 20s. It originally started in the 1860s. It was purely a Southern organization. But the organization we saw in the 1920s was was a national organization. They had their headquarters in Indiana. Um, they ran several state legislatures, including the Oregon legislature, um, and were extremely powerful for about a six-year period there in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And it was this very... Uh, widespread uh, national phenomenon, and it was classically proto-fascist. But it actually fell apart the way most far-right movements do in America because it actually, they, they didn't have a single charismatic leader, and the leaders that they did have were scam artists who were <laughs> mostly interested in making tons of money from the movement, and it and it fell apart in, in internecine squabbling and in scandals over the misappropriation of large amounts of funds. Mm-hmm. So that's what killed the, tw- the Klan in the 20s. And the fact was they really, once, even though they had this large pool of authoritarian followers, they really didn't have the single charismatic leader that would kind of take them up to that next level. So uh, it is cyclical in America. We've had this uh, right-wing populism going through our history really dating back to the Whiskey Rebellion. Mm-hmm. The right-wing populism is this thing that keeps popping up. It's built around this producerist narrative, which is that um, the idea that ordinary working people are being caught in between a nefarious cabal of elitist uh, conspirers uh, on the top and, and a subclass of of non-white minorities below or whatever kind of minorities below, uh, sandwiching them in between. That's what the right-wing populist narrative is fundamentally about. And we've had it for a a long time. It's just bubbling back up again. And a lot of this has to do with, you know, um, 
the media environment that we've created over the last 20 years, particularly Fox News. I mean, we have a cable station that's dedicated to uh, coaching half of America to hate the other half, mm -hmm. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then it's more extreme offshoots on the internet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they, they right, they, they actually, what they do is they sort of generate the mindset that gets people uh, in this mode, and next thing you know, they're going from Fox News to Alex Jones. And then they go from Alex Jones to Richard Spencer and Andrew Anglin, mm -hmm. right? Since you bring them up, I got an email from Richard Spencer because I'm on a lot of PR lists and it's, hi, it's Richard Spencer. I'm going to be at CPAC today. That to me is emblematic of how acceptable it has become to have Richard Spencer's name on your email saying, come hear me at CPAC. And that to me is a measure of how far we've gone. Yes, absolutely. No, it's, I mean, truly, when you look at the actual traffic numbers that these websites get, it's very frightening because mm -hmm. you realize they are getting really huge followers and ultimately this is what the alt-right really kind of represents in in a threat is that it represents the radicalization of an entire you know they're of an entire generation mm -hmm. of young white males that's who they aim their marketing towards is young white males between the ages of 14 and 30 and they are going out there and and, and creating this, but it's happening, but it's happened in part because of a media environment that even the well-meaning journalists out there who try, who are just trying to do an ordinary job are not stepping up to the plate and doing what they need to do. Think about the reportage on the Florida shooting. Mm -hmm. And I love what the kids have done. I think that clearly this represents a sort of watershed moment in our national discussion on gun control, yet at the same time, then there's been almost no discussion at all about the fact that this young man was radicalized by the alt-right. He participated in alt-right platforms. He spewed anti-Semitism, racial hatred, uh, anti-immigrant hatred uh, on his internet forums. He was aligned, he had been radicalized by the alt-right. And he was just one of many young white men that we are seeing doing this, and they're killing people. Uh, we've got a, uh, there's a, a group called Adam Waffen SS, um, terrific report on ProPublica today uh, that describes, that gives us a really deep look into how Adam Waffen organizes. They primarily organize online, but they have these, then they go out and meet in the real world and they do these paramilitary exercises and they are preparing for race war. That's mm -hmm. what they want. And yeah. I think 10 years ago, that would have been unfathomable. Do you see that as conceivable of having a war within the United States? <laughs> uh, it's conceivable. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I couldn't conceive of a Trump presidency. So, <laughs> Well, that was encouraging. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> I know. No, I mean, honestly, I, I really kind of believed in my heart of hearts he wasn't going to get elected. You're not a guy who's only watched this from the sidelines. You were at one of the protests where you saw someone get shot. Yeah, I was about 10 feet away from him. On the night of the inauguration, January 20th, the University of Washington hosted Milo Yiannopoulos. And uh, there was, you know, a substantial counter-protest that turned out. It was actually the first of these counter-protests, and our protests that really uh, turned fairly violent. 
And I was standing next to uh, a young man named Joshua Dukes, who had been acting as a kind of peacekeeper, as this tall, very athletic young man. And he would just place his body in between the guys that wanted to fight. He was, you know, just trying to keep the temperature down. And there was this character uh, who I'd been watching all night going around from the alt-right side trying to cause trouble. And he had a pepper spray gun that he was starting to use on the counter-protesters. And Joshua went to grab that pepper spray gun out of his hand. And the guy's wife, who we found out later, had almost pulled the gun out earlier that night, pulled out a gun and shot him. And... uh, he was in ICU for two months, and uh, he's doing fine now. I mm-hmm. had coffee with him a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's looking healthy. He's lost a lot of weight. Uh, but, yeah, he survived. Um, had a bullet lodged next to his spine, though. We talked about how some of the issue here is responsibility in the media. How did you see that event reported? <laughs> Well, mainly thanks to Breitbart. Uh, the Breitbart immediately reported it as an alt-right person had been shot. They flipped the, t- the cards on. And that was what Milo said that evening at the gathering. He said, they're shooting us now. And actually, it had gone the other way. Breitbart never corrected it. Daily Caller did correct their reportage, uh, but just barely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, but yeah, and but most of all, the the crazy thing about it is, is that, you know, we've afterwards, especially after Charlottesville, we saw uh, a lot of media narrative uh, building up the what the the uh, you know the black bloc um, anti-fascist faction as this nefarious violent threat that was actually half responsible for the violence at these events. Good people on both sides, bad people on both sides. Yeah, but the reality is uh, these things are being fomented quite deliberately by the alt-right. They're going there to create violence as much as they can. I want to be fair about that because we're very experienced in protest here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there is a fringe that, you know, some of the more radicals, the anarchists, who do go down the street and break windows and start fights and start fires. And I I don't want to dismiss that. In Seattle as well. Yeah. Um, No, there there is. And I, I, you know, they're fundamentally, they're every bit as anti-democratic as the alt-right is. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, they're not my allies. In Uh, numbers, how do they compare? Significantly different. So probably the numbers of the radical left, these black bloc folks, you know, they're essentially they're basically relegated around the country to a handful of cities with uh, left wing campuses, um, and totally around the country they probably number in the low thousands. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about the radical right. Uh, just the alt-right. If we just talk about the alt-right, and this doesn't even include the patriot militia right. Um, What's the distinction you're making there? Well, I'll explain that. But the, uh, but just the alt-right, we're looking at, if you look at the internet numbers, um, you know, we know that Alex Jones gets 2 million views a week. We know that uh, the Daily Stormer, the neo-Nazi website, gets hundreds of thousands of visits a day. Um, and these are, so we're seeing really massive internet traffic numbers. And these are probably the best gauge we actually have for 
the actual size of the movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but the participation online is also massive. So we know that it's not just ephemeral. Right. Um, and so, yeah, uh, if we were to hazard a guess at the size of the alt-right, it numbers in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And then if you go out to rural America, the world out there is very different, but it's fundamentally the default worldview in rural America today, in Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oklahoma, the South, wherever you go, the Patriot Militia worldview, their understanding of what the Constitution is, is fundamentally the default view now. It mm. is pervasive. And that's also really profoundly disturbing to me as well. Dave Nywert, author of Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. My complete conversations with him and with Morgan Jurgens are online at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. I'm Angie Claro in for the vacationing Brad, and I will do so again next time if you'll have me. I'll do it whether you'll have me or not, but do tune in. Until then, good luck, world. We'll